the last day of boxing, you know, Fidel was, Castro was in the stands doing the wave um, as Felix Savone and the boxers, I think they won seven out of eight finals against the Americans and Fidel was doing the wave. Literally, the, the, I would watch him, like, you know, the, the, the thing would circle, the crowd, the wave would circle around, and I'm like, there's just no chance Fidel Castro is going to stand up and do the wave. Is sure he, he did. And, and he absolutely did. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. Our guest this week is S.L. Price, a senior writer at Sports Illustrated since 1994, the author of a lot of really acclaimed profiles. Eight times he's been in Best American Sports Writing, and he's written a number of books. Um, the most important of those books for me is Pitching Around Fidel, which is what I was reading when I first went to Cuba. The hero of that story was Hector Venant, a two-time Olympic boxing champion who had confessed to Mr. Price that he wanted to leave Cuba, and Venant ended up becoming my trainer and a, a principal character in the book that I wrote about Cuba, which was kind of uh, picking up the baton from Price. Um, so when I was able to meet him early on, he became a real special mentor for me and, and somebody I've admired um, on and off the page a great deal. And. He's just done everything that you can do in, in this industry and went to school in North Carolina where he was covering some guy named Michael Jordan uh, before Jordan was Jordan. Played one-on-one -on -one with President Obama before President Obama was President Obama and, and just endless profiles thereafter um, about anybody who's been anybody since he started and he does it as well as anybody on top of that. So this was a real treat to talk to him and uh, learn about his journey in this industry, this rapidly changing industry, and, and about the experiences behind the scenes, uh, offering a backstage pass into what it's been like to be privy to, to some of these tremendous personalities in sports, and uh, all sports, but, but including boxing a little bit as well, and uh, indulging selfishly in some of my Cuba stuff. So I hope you enjoy it. I guess we could start if we just start sure. biographically. Because um, I heard you I heard you discuss it with somebody else in an interview, but you grew up in Connecticut, right? Yeah, Stanford. St Stanford. Yep. I was just there for the first time a couple yep. days ago. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. What a small, not, I don't mean it in a demeaning way, but you just know, like I, what a quiet. Yeah, yeah, no, suburban, you know, it was a, a, one of the, it actually was a, you know, it's a big commuter town, obviously, for New York. And um, at the time, I think it had more corporate headquarters than any, um, or at least at one time, when I was, at one point during my, when I was being raised, it had more corporate headquarters than any city in the country. So it was oh. definitely a bedroom community for, for, um, uh, for, for New York office workers, essentially. But what, what was interesting that I grew up thinking it was a, an entirely boring place and I wanted to get out desperately, you know, sort of your classic romantic writing sensibility, you know, got to get out of my hometown, it's stultifying, so on and so forth. I, um, and interestingly, in 1999, I went back. It's very interesting because when you, it's, it is sort of the frog in the boiling water thing. You, you, even if you're a reporter and you, I mean, I love asking people questions and I love traveling around, but um, it's sort of, you're sort of like your own family. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you, you don't really 
pay attention to your hometown in, in a way that you do your, almost every other aspect of your life as a, as a writer reporter because you almost feel it's like you take it for granted as a piece of subject matter for the most part. And I went back and did a story on Bobby Valentine, the, mm -hmm. uh, uh, who was then the Mets manager. And at the time, the Mets were rolling. And I went to do the story of sort of Stanford's hometown hero. He was the Bobby Valentine, went to my high school, and he was mm -hmm. by far the best. He's still considered one of the great athletes in Connecticut history and certainly the best athlete ever to come out of my high school. Um, incredible track football and, and uh, baseball star. And um, what I found was, um, I mean, I grew up north of the Parkway, North Stanford, which was, which was considered wealthy, but my family had no money. So we, we moved in before the money sort of got there. And uh, you What know, did your parents do? Well, my dad worked in advertising, but he tried to start his own corporation. It didn't work out, so he, he didn't work for a long time. My mother was at a secretary. Huh. And so there was no money, essentially, um, for when I was growing up, which was a great thing, actually, in, in the long term, because I had to learn to take care of myself and everything else and pay for college and all that. But, um, and I thought, sort of thought of Stanford as, you know, Greenwich, you know, as Darien, as, as New Canaan, you know, wealthy enclave. And, you know, I kind of was disgusted by the whole thing in a very teenage melodramatic way. You know, the night before I left town, um, I went to the University of Connecticut at Stanford for two years, and then I transferred to North Carolina. And the night before I left town, I took a bucket of paint and wrote, um, it's a town full of losers, and I'm pulling out here to win on, wow. the, on the sidewalk, which is the end of Thunder Road by Bruce Springsteen. So <laughs> classic, melodramatic, wow. overblown, you know, self-dramatizing teenager. Huh. And, uh, but when I went back to, to, to do the Valentine story, I had to look at my hometown clinically because I wanted to know where, how Bobby Valentine grew up. And he grew up son of Italian, um, uh, you know, blue collar worker in, in Stanford. And what I realized was Stanford was actually incredibly interesting because the divide mm -hmm. between the Merritt Parkway, north of the Parkway and south of the Parkway, Stanford was actually a mix of Greenwich and at the time Norwalk, which was a very blue collar town. And so south of the Parkway is a very blue collar Italian Irish enclave. And there was great resentment toward the, mm -hmm. the rich people up in North Stanford and um, a great tension. And tension makes for great stories. So, so um, it just turned out that Stanford unbeknownst to me and my self sort of mellow, melodramatic self dramatizing way really uh, didn't understand because because you don't really take take stock of your um, your own experience a lot of times as a reporter certainly so I had to objectively go back and look at that and then the story sort of completely blew up because um, the Mets started losing and and Valentine sort of spouted off in the way that Bobby does and mm -hmm told me a lot of things and the quotes became sort of in, at the time viral and he almost got fired or at least he says he almost did and they went to the World Series you know um, uh, the following year to play the Yankees but but it was you know touch and go for Bobby for a while but it, but a crazy story and it was one of the few stories that I ever wrote early on certainly in the first person because I'm not a big first person guy but because I was from Stanford I had to say this is my hometown this is and and it was really interesting so that's did you find anything like or I'll reframe it. What did you find the most new about something from where you where you grew up? Like, what what did you miss while you were growing up that well, you found I, going back? I mean, it's, it's, essentially, it's an in, in internal discord, the tension huh. between 
like it was New Canaan, everybody agreed. We're all rich. We're all having a, you know, we're all living a nice life and we're going to commute in, you know, into, into New York. And it's your sort of, it's Cheeverville. But, but it was the, it was the fact that, that Stanford was, had this great divide between um, its sort of upscale um, enclave and then, and then essentially the blue collar and white collar, uh, blue collar, um, you know, Irish and Italian, population south of the south of the border i mean I, I played you know pop warner football and and it was um it was coached by um uh, a, a, a very hard-boiled crew of italian guys uh for girardi brothers I don't, yeah. I don't even know what the company was girardi brothers but it was from down south and they would come up and they were the the the, the disdain for all us kids because it was a north stanford team from our coaches essentially was, you know, oh, you got you softies up here in the ridges. You're like, you know, what are we doing here with you guys? You know, it's like it, it was the, there was a real and, and really I should have picked up on that mm-hmm. when I was living there. But I had I didn't understand it. Like I was I was a kid. I was 10, you know, so I'm like completely clueless. And it was only in, in retrospect and going back. And I think there's something really valuable about that. I mean, I when I, I wrote my second book after the um, pitching around Fidel, when I went overseas to um, uh, Sports Illustrated sent me to live, and I ended up living in the south of France, which is hilarious in its own, you know, in its own way. And I wrote, I thought, well, this is the one time where a a um, sports writer's life might be interesting. It was right after the the Iraq War. Um, everybody hated Bush in Europe, and America's reputation was right after the revelation of Abu Ghraib, and um, we were. You know, the Athens games were coming and was, sports was going back to its original source and terrorism, fears of terrorism were big and uh, were extremely high, heightened at the time. Um, people really thought there was going to be an attack at that point. Athens was really vulnerable, close to the Middle East, so on and so forth. And I thought, well, if ever, if ever there's a time where a sports writer's life might be interesting, it's, it's ping-ponging around Europe for about this year, just before the Athens, including the Athens games. And when I, when I wrote it, uh, I realized that, you know, I'm taking, I'm the glue. I'm the, I'm the guy who's taking you along on this journey. So if I'm going to do that, you're going to have to, I'm going to have to tell you a little bit about myself. And I ended up um, writing a lot about my family and where, you know, how I got to be a sports writer. And, um, you know, one, it's kind of a a really grave responsibility when you're writing about your family. And um, I felt well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be tough on my family. I'm going to tell some secrets or just some facts about my family that are not very flattering. But but the animating principle is I'm going to be tougher on myself than any anybody else mm. if I if, if I can help it. And um, and you illuminated the alcoholism in your family. Like you talked about some very tough things. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and by, you know, dad was out of a job, and it was you know yeah. there was a certain amount of shame associated with that. And yeah. Um, and you know, living in an enclave full of money, surrounded by money and having no money, it's a weird dynamic, especially for a teenage kid. I mean, it's just, it's just, and you know, my brothers, we had five kids and, but, but the, the point is, is that I had to go, I, what I did was I reported on my family. Mm. I reported on my, the welter of that, of, you know, craziness, neuroses, you know, family dynamics that created me as a writer. And frankly, it's a very rare thing. Um, it's 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 better than therapy because what it is is you're taking all the skills and energy that was created by whatever what you know by that family and using those skills in a circular fashion to go back and understand 
those dynamics. Yeah. So I'm reporting on my own family and my own psychology. And there was something in that, like a plumber doesn't get to do that. You don't get to, you know, you don't do, you're not a carpenter and then you get to understand your family by nailing, nailing a, a board to a wall. But as a reporter, you're given the skills to actually go back and sort of understand where you came from and what you did. And there's something in that circularity that I didn't realize at the time was, for lack of a better word, therapeutic. Like mm. it was it was like talk therapy. Like I, I actually sort of worked out things that I didn't understand because I had to examine things that maybe I, I glancingly didn't pay attention to in myself, weaknesses in myself, weaknesses in my family, strengths in my family. Uh, asking for forgiveness for sort of an attitude that I had because I was pretty full of myself. Um, you know, so so it was just, uh, uh, it, it was it was a, an exercise that I didn't realize I was going through until after it was done. And then I kind of went, huh. You know, took a deep breath and went, wow, that, something happened there and I, I didn't realize it. But that's, look, writers are not making a lot of money these days. Uh, but I will tell you this, save money on therapy <laughs> and go back and write about and go back and look at your life objectively as a reporter. Yeah. And you can write about, I mean, uh, Melissa Isaacson, uh, a reporter, a great talented writer at, at the Chicago Tribune for a very long time and a colleague of mine, I mean, you know, in the business, uh, went back and wrote about her high school basketball team. She wrote a book called State that came out last year. Really excellent, superb book. And it was a women's, you know, girls basketball team at a time when it was, Title IX was just starting and all that, and they ended up winning a state title. And 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 I said to her, "Look, you gotta you you gotta write this book, whether anyone pays you or not, because it'll be you'll you'll find it an incredible process just to go back and look at your life like you would any other feature story, like you would any other profile." Or, or and so um, and I and I. I've given that advice to a number of people. I mean, they were writing books anyway, but I've said, you're gonna find it's more gratifying than you realize. And I don't mean, I'm, I'm, I'm the last person who wants to talk about themselves in, in their pieces, even though we all know all writing is autobiography, whether you're writing, you know. But, um, so, and I really dislike the reliance on first person, um, you know, so, and we can talk about that. But, but there is something, if you're hard-eyed on yourself, and using the skills that that um, the craziness of your family, for lack of a better word, created um, uh, to go back and circularly try and understand your family, I think it's an incredibly productive um, exercise for anyone. And and frankly, in that honesty, um, some really compelling writing uh, can be found. Well, I, when you were talking about where you grew up, it reminded me a bit of like the my favorite section of Gatsby is when Caraway talks about his home in the Midwest and all the important characters in that are from the Midwest. Mm -hmm. The ones who really have to pick up the pieces right. of what the rich do is it's the train ride home. It's not home. Mm -hmm. It's the train ride home where journey it comes back. into focus. Yeah, yeah. The journey back. And <clears throat> that there's a, I wanted to touch on a little bit cause I think there is a, a, a romantic streak to a lot of your work and a lot of romanticism is predicated on on this kind of conflict and like your hesitance and there's something about you disliking writing about yourself in the first person that makes you much more trustworthy to listen to from my point of view right. as a reader and some of the romanticism of you going off to places I know was cultivated in part from your connection to film 
and two films in particular that seem mm. a little bit diametrically opposed. <laughs> but Diner, being yep. one of your all-time favorites, you yep. wrote this wonderful piece in Vanity Fair about it. And then Lawrence of Arabia, yep. which seems so, I don't know if it's contradictory, but um, one really seems about staying at home, that we can never leave home. Why would you ever leave home? And right. the other just psychiatric conference worth of contradictions yeah. of this character. So I, <clears throat> I wonder what was the real impetus to get out of town as much as it was to leave something right was there stuff that you could now identify that offered a gateway drug into what you wanted to search for as a writer as a as a person i mean you married you you mentioned in your memoir that you you married your wife mm -hmm. um who you knew in high school right you know so you have on the right. one hand well stanford got its revenge on it. <laughs> you know it's like yeah you wanted to get away from stanford guess what you ended up marrying it you yeah know? i mean yeah i mean she i mean there's a golf course named for my wife's grandfather wow. in stanford uh, um you know so i mean you know, that family is a real, the Brennan family is a real institution, hmm. um, high and low in, in, in Stanford. And, um, and, uh, and so, she, you know, it, look, <laughs> the funny, the, the unspoken or, or, or the similarity though between Lawrence of Arabia and, 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 and Diner is uh, the lack of women. Ooh, interesting. No, no, what I'm saying is, I mean, you, you just look at it, it's like Lawrence of Arabia has zero female characters and and diner is about you know five guys you know basically trying to figure out and their fear of women huh so uh, i i <laughs> now I, I i don't know what that says about me but it, I, i'll tell you that you know i grew up in a, in a house of guys huh. uh, of th i had three brothers and my dad was a marine and i think there's an element of of trying to understand yourself as a male in 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 and male society hmm. is just really interesting to me you know I, I like guy banter i think there's there's you know i think it's i think it's really an interesting code um, guys giving shit to each other, you know, um, there's a certain amount of, uh, there's some people don't know how to do it. There's a very famous, not very famous, but, um, there's a, there's a great story by Norman Mailer, who I actually think is maybe the most overrated, uh, overrated writer in history called the language of men. And it's about a guy who does not know how to speak to other, to other guys. Like huh. literally he's in the, he's in the Marines or, you know, in, in the armed forces and he, and he, he just, he's off. His rhythm is off. He doesn't know how to, and, 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 and they, no one can voice what it is because guys are, aren't really engaging in, in pulling apart, you know, the dialectics of language. Right. But, but, um, but he just can't, he doesn't know how to talk casually to other men and it, it screws him up. And in fact, one of the directors that I, um, spoke to for the diner piece, uh, he, uh, John, John Hamburg, I think, it is, uh, I, think I think that's his name. I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on it right now. But he, he wrote, I mean, he did a movie called I Love You, Man, hmm. which is essentially about Paul Rudd trying to get a friend because he had, had only female friends. And he, and he, needed, a, he, he needed to get a best man. Uh, and I'm trying, I'm blanking on, uh, it's Jason. Uh, Sudeikis? No, not Sudeikis. No, uh, uh, you know, he's... Tall, tall, lumbering. You know, uh, he was in. You know, uh, you know, he's one of the you know classic Zach Gal Galifianakis. You know, right. crew of of comics. Uh, he was in Forty Year Old Virgin. You know, whatever. Anyway, no, the Jewish kid who's super funny. I think we're talking about the same guy, right? I, I can't remember, but he's very tall and lumbering. And, and anyway, he and and so anyway, it's called I Love You, Man. And it's and it's essentially he throughout. It's a joke where he his his rhythm is off. He doesn't know how to like talk to this right. guy in, in like a guy. And it's really brilliant in the sense that um, uh, uh, there is a real code there. So I think I'm, mm. I'm sort of 
uh, I've, I've always been sort of intrigued by just guy code. And, you know, my brothers and I certainly didn't understand each other for a long time. And um, I wanted to get out of that the cauldron. And that was a big part of me going to work in California. I couldn't, I mean, I, if I could have at the time, I would have gone to Hawaii. You know, I would have kept going west, like, as far as I can go. But, but the point is, is that, is that I, I, I think there's something fascinating to me about, about that. And, and certainly it's only become more and more fascinating as, as men are really questioning their place in this world. And, and it's certainly changing and, and, and evolving in, in ways that most of the time they're almost incapable of understanding. So... Hmm. That confusion is really fascinating to me, but but diner they're they're completely confused, and uh, externally, right. you know, internally as well. And boy, is Lawrence confused, <laughs> you know? right? And also, I mean, look, I, I you know, it's let's let's be serious. I mean, aside from that dynamic, I mean, I I love the great man theory of history. I'm you know I'm interested in Churchill and and especially Lawrence. They're both men of men of action and. And men of thought. There aren't many. Usually, there's a dichotomy. They actually, you know, Churchill won the Nobel Prize for literature and saved Western civilization. That's a pretty good double, you know. Um, Lawrence was ar archaeology, wasn't that his degree? Right, but he also wrote the Seven Pillars of yeah, Wisdom. Yeah, yeah. And, and the other thing, I mean, I love about that movie. First of all, it's it's just spectacularly beautiful. And Robert Bolt's script. There's oh. this incredible tension between the epic grandeur of the scenery and the and the scope of the movie and the spareness of the script itself the yeah. language i mean it's 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 forget hemingway who became a joke after a while robert bolt in that screenplay uh, the discipline and the and the um of the language and the spare uh, and the tension between the language the sparse sparseness of the language and the 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 incredible grandeur and 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 so quotable it's yeah, so it's just but that tension quoted. is is fascinating to me yeah so so i mean I don't want to overstate the Lawrence, you know, men thing because I, I as a writer, I, I, I mean, the, the screenplay is perfect. I mm. mean, it's just and, it, and it's and it's astonishing because because on Dr. Shivago or some, you know, any other David Lean film, you know, there's lots of florid dialogue and, and, and it's and it, but but the bolt, I mean, there, it's such an achievement. It's almost heroic that he, that that the screenplay sort of holds its place and it's and it's and its sparseness. You know, engulfed in that in that sort of scenery and, and epic tale. So so there's almost nothing like it to me. So technically, no. I got to tell you that a lot of it, my love for that movie is 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 also technical. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Huh? Yeah, the creation. Well, I think a lot of people have that relationship with Gatsby, right? I mean, Hunter S. Thompson used to he couldn't find the story, so he would type out Gatsby to feel right. it under his fingertips. Right. Very technical relationship right. to art, which. I guess pianists would would, yeah. would constantly be confronted with, but for writers, that I'd never heard that before. Yeah, well, it's Salieri. You know, you're looking at it, you're right. like, holy, holy cow! How 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 is he doing that? I mean, it's just, I mean, it's it's a magnificent uh, feat of screen uh, of screenwriting. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't know what comes close. And Diner to me is sort of the opposite, because huh. it's it's all about riffing, and 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 guy talk. But but you know, and I had a, a theory about it that I was allowed to play with, which is that I. I think it invented a lot of what what we see today, those sort of secondary conversations that are meaningless between guys sitting in a squad car or um, you know on, on screen or anywhere where it's where it's like, yeah, you know, I love apple pie. Well, screw you, I like peach pie. You know, and it's like this Tarantino. Sort of, yeah, exactly. Seinfeld. I mean, Tarantino. Full, you know, the reason we like 
those reprehensible characters in, in Pulp Fiction is because, you know, they're talking about, you know, foot massages and, and quarter pounders. And it's all this inane dialogue that also there's a tension between that and the violence. You know, it's sort of a, a, right. a weird combination because you're like, oh, I like this guy. Wait, he just blew someone's head off. What do I do? You know, at and, unexpected moments. Right, also. Right. Not, and so. Right. Yeah. And so I, 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 I love that Barry Levinson allowed that to be invented. Yeah. And because and, a lot of it was, especially from Paul Reiser, completely sort of spontaneous and... And, uh, and fuck, and, I mean, if you can make Steve Gutenberg compelling on screen, yeah. and he is, yeah, you know, you're doing yeah. something... Can't beat the roast beef sandwich scene. That's all there's to it. You know? <laughs> or what was it, Mickey Rourke in the movie theater? Yeah. Oh, yeah, with a popcorn box. Good holy God. Yeah. No, and there's a real element of misogyny in that movie uh, that, you know, they never show the bride's face. I mean, oh. Ellen Barkin is by far the the most human... The most adult and the most complex character, and she's fantastic in it. Oh, and, she's and that so was an achievement because she sort of because the movie wasn't about her, and she just killed it. And and nobody uh, has her presence as yeah. as an actress. Like she's so singular. Yeah, a, a presence like smart, sexy, dangerous, mysterious. Yeah, uh, and, and smart and smart is the right way to put so it. So smart, but really that so that so that's also an achievement that I love in that movie is that she sort of barreled past the guyness. And, and said, I am here. And I, I, I think that's a, uh, as an actress, and, and frankly, again, Levinson was smart enough to, to know what, how good she was. I don't think he, he even tested, I could be wrong, but I think everyone, he did numerous screen tests on everybody else, but I think for her, she was it. As soon as she came in, it was over. Interesting. Yeah. Well, no, she, I mean, kind of reminds me a little bit of like Margot Robbie in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. There were some criticism about how few lines she had. It's all men right. in it, but it's about that. It's not yeah. like Tarantino doesn't, He's had a huge focus on women, right. but I found her portrayal of Sharon Tate all the more haunting for how spare it was. Yeah, You're looking at her and you're seeing these important moments of the rise of becoming famous, living a dream, yeah. as all these dreams are crashing into the reality of this era is over. Right. I thought and she's was, also a symbol for Tarantino. Sure. I mean, she's, you know, you know, Sharon Tate almost isn't human for him. Right, and neither is I don't, and I'm. I mean, I think Margot Robbie did a great job. Yeah, I did in too. that, but I, but I, I, I think, I think, Tarantino intentionally didn't want her to have a, a lot of lines. Like you know, she she was more to be seen. Yeah, and 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 dreamed about than than listened to. Yeah. No. Anyway, I yeah. I just I see a bit of a parallel with that. Um, so. You you transfer over to North Carolina, and one mm. thing that I didn't even it didn't even occur to me, I don't I don't keep people's ages in line with other people who are in the certain space just naturally, yeah. um, but of course you're there as a burgeoning sports writer. I presume you're working for the newspaper at, yeah. at the university, Daily Tar Heel. Yeah. So there's some guy I forget his name playing yeah. basketball at that yeah. time. Yeah. Quite regularly. Mike Jordan. Yeah. Was his name when he yeah. was when he was uh, when he in, in in his freshman year in the basketball program was Mike Jordan. Um, was it really? Yeah. And he really he wasn't known about, you know. I mean, he, he wasn't really, you know, trumpeted certainly until the end of his freshman year when he hit the shot that won Dean Smith his first national championship, and then That's a pretty good shot. And then I covered Jordan's sophomore year as a I was a junior and I I was sports editor. Uh, of the Tar Heel and and covered Jordan's sophomore year, which I would you know that's when he really broke out and became Michael Jordan to a certain extent. Everyone went crazy over him, and 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 he was doing just 
ridiculously spectacular, you know, stealing the ball, like, you know, storybook, you know, stealing the ball in, in, in the last three seconds and dunking, you know, to win the game. I mean, it was just one spectacular um, uh, performance after another. And it was really the first, the first piece that I ever sort of felt uh, in control of. Not that it was any good, but I was sort of writing, I, I, I sort of was, I was, I, I declared Michael Jordan the best shooting guard in the country that's a, not, huh. not the best player but like you know so i mean it was it was this sort of but but i sort of went on a limb i just decided he's the best you know and i wrote it and and you know described him as a uh, like having um frying pan hands and puppy dog feet huh. it was a in, a in a horrible overwritten thing but but you know he had really huge hands and he would and and um but it was me daring to to step out a little bit as a writer as opposed to just, you know, this is what happened and everything else. And, and I remember, I, I still remember writing it and, and feeling different, feeling buzzy. Like he, I gained, frankly, I, I gained a little bit of cockiness from watching him. Huh. You know, it was, it was, it was um, he was so spectacular that it, it forced me to lift my game a little bit. Where were you sitting when he hit that shot as a freshman? Oh, I was, I, he was, I, I wasn't, I was in the Daily Tar Heel offices this was in New Orleans, and I was uh, my job was to take dictation of the game from that year's sports writer, sports editor of of the game story, when uh, over the phone. Wow! So that's I I, uh, I typed it up and and then you know gave it to the printers or whatever and, and so that's so I was in Chapel Hill for when all hell broke loose. Did you have a sense that you were kind of there at the ground floor of? Am I, I mean, am I off base to say he's the closest we've had to Babe Ruth? You mean at the time? No, well, I was drinking it's... and you know majoring in English <laughs> and, and 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 by the way, I mean he was he had just come off. I mean he was following James Worthy, who right. uh, who was an incredible player, and and the string of great players at Chapel Hill was he he was just considered another link in the chain. I mean, they won a national championship, and then he was spectacular, but no one thought he was going to be. Better than James Worthy, you know. No, and and he was playing with Sam Perkins at the time, who was right. considered a very good player. And, um, you know, there there was a, a long line of incredible players at, at North Carolina. And, but the most interesting thing about Jordan, for me, was like if you knew him then, like I, I we were not friends, you know. I was I was a writer for the paper. He was playing basketball, but he. And frankly, if, if you had asked me, you know, when I left school, would, would Michael Jordan know who you were? I'd be like, I don't know. Like, I met him a couple times, you know, and then I would talk to him after games. But, but I certainly was in the paper, and they were reading the paper, and maybe, maybe he knew my name. Maybe. Uh, but then right after school, I got a job at the Sacramento Bee, and I was hired in 1984, and in 1985, essentially pretty quickly, it was clear after I got there that the Kings were moving, Sacramento Kings were moving then the Kansas City Kings were moving from Kansas City to Sacramento. So I was basically given the job of covering the Kings at 22, 23 years old and um, scared out of my mind, don't know how to report, was competing against another morning paper, which was pretty rare at the time. And, you know, sure, I was going to get fired every day and probably should have been uh, a number of times because I was so bad. But um, Jordan... You know, obviously he's got this hard-ass reputation, but Chapel Hill is under his skin and, and was before that. And, and if you knew him then, even if you didn't know him, but if you came from that era, 
he, you know, I, I, he would see me and give me all the time in the world to talk. Really? He was always, hey, Scotty, 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 what do you do? You know, but, and, and it was not because we were friends. It was because he, he knew me. I knew him then. And, and, and back in Chapel Hill, which I, I went and did it when I was working for the Miami Herald. I actually sat down with him in Miami and did a column about it. And he, we were talking about guys we knew in Chapel Hill. And, and, and it was clear and he said, you know, this this was a time when I, it was it was the perfect place for me because I was becoming a star, but I still could walk around and be a normal guy and, and sort of the same thing. And it was the last time that he wasn't Michael Jordan, the icon. He was just a, a kid. And, you know, he would always wear Carolina shorts under his Bulls shorts his entire career. And um, so, you know, he was he was. Uh, he was he you know I, I was working for Sacramento there was no reason for for me to him to ever talk to me he was in Chicago I was just an NBA writer and but he always made the time and and asked we asked about people we knew and so on and so forth and uh, it, and and it was always interesting to me because he it, that was his his soft spot and I just happened to be a very minuscule part of that soft spot. Well, when you when you heard him give that speech at the Hall of Fame and it was just so full of grievance after yeah. grievance after grievance I was like that's Mike. Like that's, that's what made him great. I mean, this is the problem. He's not a nice guy. And I don't mean this. I, he's, he's charity. Good. What I'm saying is none of these guys are nice guys. Yeah. They're, they, they could be generous at times. They're good family men. Some of them they're, you know, they're, they raise nice children. I'm, I'm, but people ask me this all the time. Oh, is, is, uh, is Michael a nice guy? Is, is magic? And I, well, you know, was, LeBron and I, none of them. Are, you know what their job is? Their job is to beat people up in public. Yeah. Their job is to is to humiliate someone else and beat them. That doesn't attract nice guys. I mean, he's not a. They're not saints. And so I'm not saying they're not capable of, of generous, good impulses or or anything. But I mean, what are we talking about here? We raise we raise these people in a petri dish from childhood to beat the hell out of each other and to look for any edge possible. And then we're horrified when they Enjoy dance it. as close to the edge as possible. But every single athlete I've ever talked to has some asshole, some bit of asshole in them. That's what makes part of it is what makes them great. So Michael, I think to his credit, uh, is Michael. And he, he is, he can be a nice guy. There's no question. He can, but, and, but he's a hard ass competitor. That's, that's where he lives. And that's that's what made him great, and they're not like you and me, you know. What was it? They, you know, the rich are not like you and me. They have more money, you know. Yeah. But but uh, Hemingway said the Fitzgerald. Well, athletes are not like you and me. They they're 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 hard-eyed killers when it comes to competition, and and we that we prize them, and pay them, exorbitantly to to be that way, and we raise them to be that way. We have an entire hot house designed for for our entertainment that uh, they're going to go out and, and, and compete against each other. I mean, I, I once, there was one athlete, Wayne Gretzky, who's incredibly sweet. I, I, as a Sacramento Bee reporter, I went up right after the trade when he was traded to L.A. and, uh, um, and went to Victoria, British Columbia to, to talk to Wayne Gretzky. I'm not a hockey writer. I'm not, it's not a hockey town. I walk in to, right after the trade to L.A., the most epic trade, uh, you know, essentially it was like, the Kennedy assassination in Canada. Like Wayne Gretzky was traded to L.A. Okay, I mean it was a, it was a heartbreak for the entire country. So I go up to Victoria, British Columbia, 
after like a week after the trade. Yeah. They're like, yeah, go go get Wayne Gretzky. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I, I walk into the locker room of the Kings. The PR guy's like, yeah, I just go in and ask him. You know, I walk I walk in. Gretzky's sitting alone by his locker. Uh, hey, Mr. Gretzky, uh, Scott Price, Sacramento B. Uh, I wonder if I could get you for like five minutes, you know, hour and a half later. I mean, you know, Whoa. he was unbelievable, incredibly thoughtful, incredibly gracious. So... A few years ago, I was at the Olympics and with Michael Farber, the great hockey writer of, of, of Sports Illustrated. And, and I said, Michael, I, you know, I have got this, this theory, like every great athlete I've ever known uh, has a bit of asshole in them, you know, because that's that's what the job demands. I mean, you're you're, you know, like I said, and I said, the only one I never saw it in was Gretzky. Like mm. I, he just was the sweet. I could just and he goes, don't worry, it's there. <laughs> you know. <laughs> You know, and, and, and he liked it. I mean, it's not, you know, it, it's just there's this sort of expectation because of sneaker commercials and the fact that, you know, they're on social media and, and, and whatever that, you know, in talk shows, they come out and they're, you know, chopping it up, as my son says, with the with Jimmy Fallon. And we're like, oh, God, you know, they're just regular, regular folk, you know. No, they're there to kick ass. Yeah, that, that is a, a very, very specific. Re- and by the way. Not everybody, I'm talking about the greats. I mean, there are people who are in sports who are athletically gifted, really tall. They're in sports, you know, everybody in their family wanted them to be in sports, but maybe they don't want to be there. Maybe, you know, maybe, you know, they don't have that fire. So, so there are plenty of people in professional sports who play and, and, and you know, just don't have that. I mean, Dominique Wilkins was Michael Jordan at one point. Right. High flying, incredible, spectacular talent, but he wasn't a killer. So, uh, you know, great player, nice guy, but nobody, he's nobody's pantheon. But those guys, that's a different... And by the way, Muhammad Ali, you know. Oh, yeah. The saint? Are you kidding me? No. I mean, he was a killer. Killer. And he was mean as a snake. Uh, and you can ask half his opponents who talk trash to him. But I mean, of course, now he's been deified, and that's sort of forgotten. Um, and, and frankly, does him a bit of disrespect. He, at his heart, he was an athlete oh, <laughs> and, yeah. and, and an a incredible competitor. That's what made him great. That, that's, the, that's the foundation. Everything else is secondary. Well, it's so, it's so fascinating what you raise because I think, yeah, we, we run from that fact that what drives these people are these demons to turn them into the so compulsive and they have no identity no. outside of achievement. Winning, 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 winning. We see it with the president all the time. There's, there's killers and there's losers. That's right. it. There's nothing else. Zero-sum game. And I, like, occasionally I get a call. Uh, if, if, you know, I, I list that I train boxing, and somebody will call me that I don't know because it's on, online, some telemarketer, and will say, do you want to expand your business? And I'll say no. And there's nowhere to go right. with telemarketing. Well, why don't you want to expand your business? Well, because it's where I want it. Right. I'm content. And they don't, there's no business strategy to go after contentment. And I found that traveling, too. I showed up in Ronda, Spain once, and I went to a restaurant across the street from where bullfighting was invented in the ring. And I said to the waiters, they're 50, 55, 60 years old, where are you guys from? Here. You guys, how long have you been here for? Well, th- him, 35 years, him, 40 years, him, tw- 27 years. You never want to go anywhere else? And they're like, you must be new here. Have you seen our town? Right. Why would you ever want to leave here? Right. These are so antithetical to what we're kind of sure. 
we're supposed to be touring around. We're supposed to live in places where we get fed up of being and live lives that are not sustainable. So we need escapes of various ways. It's so fascinating that like what is entertainment is such stressful, pressurized lives, making life or death struggles out of playing children games kind of thing. Uh, But yeah. And just with Jordan, I, I guess, I I wonder what it was like for you to to know what he was before he became. I mean, not like Al. I mean, Ali is a spirit, which is kind of harder to commodify. Right. Jordan, I don't know his spirit. Like, right. I, he's a brand. Right. He's a billionaire. He's the yeah. first billionaire. And, yeah. And but I don't know who he is. He's got a great sense of humor. He's 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 really smart. He's very shrewd. He reads people very well. Yeah. Um. Uh. He's obviously you know competitive. We know that. Um, he's funny. Um, you like him? I do like him. Yeah, I do. And by the way, I mean, I understand. Like, yeah, could he have, could he have, been more gracious in parts of his speech at the Hall of Fame? Sure. Um, all I'm saying is that is that um, that what he showed you was his fuel. Yeah. What he what he was showing you was it was actually quite revealing. Which which a lot of people would often say, you know, Michael wasn't revealing. You know, right. he actually was showing you. Look. I resented you for this. I resented you for this. And I used this. And this is this is what got me here. And, you know, the thing that's fascinating to me about Jordan is that he worked. He worked. Like, he was great. But that wasn't good enough. Being great, being talented wasn't good enough. And uh, his work ethic was unparalleled. Um, and he wanted to be better. And he, and, he, and, he, and he used fuel much. By the way, I had resentments as well growing up and they were fuel for me. So I, I identified with that. Yeah. You know, a lot of people like, Oh, you know, you know, no one really says the, the value of, of sort of resentment, hatred as a, a positive fuel is actually, you know, if you funnel it in the right direction, um, it can be as potent and as great a fuel as any other big time. And, and I, I want to, sh- I mean, how many times I wanted to show them, I'm, I'm going to prove it to you that you, you got me wrong. Fuck you. Right. Well, I mean, I, I, you know, you know, I left home because I was full of resentment and anger and, and, and a lot of negative feeling. And for whatever reason, I was able to work out of a lot of it and I was rewarded for it. But, um, and it was a powerful fuel for me. So in many ways I identified with, with Michael's, um, using, you know, those, those touchstones in his, in his past to push him forward. And, and you know, he would, he would invent resentments, oh, yeah. you know, and, and, and meaning once he got successful, like, you know, he got uncomfortable with success. I mean, that's interesting to me because that's really interesting. Because did you read the Springsteen, Springsteen biography by any chance? Yeah, it was great. Was it? Well, I mean, just no, like no, so. No, I know, but but the, the the stuff that's great to me was the becoming Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, thing. so insecure. Once he, once he got to his horse farm in Jersey. Oh, who gives a fuck? But no, but 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 but, but that's but the point is is that. We all can relate to the story of becoming. We all love those stories, yeah. you know. I mean, Hemingway's. The, my wife has tried reading an Ernest Hemingway biography, like all you know. Whenever they come out, she gets through the first two thirds or, or half, and then she starts. Then she throws it across the room because mm. she just can't stand him anymore. And Springsteen, to me, who I adore as a writer and and and, and a musician, and I think he's actually um, like more of a genius than that I, that I sort of in some ways give him credit for, even though I, he's very important to me, it, but for the quieter stuff that he does. Um, but frankly, the, the last third of the book, 
I couldn't care less about. It's just because success is not interesting. The interesting thing about Jordan was he was even in his mo moments of wild success, he was trying to gin up resentments to to fight back oh, against the comfort of success. Yeah, like he could have glided, and and there was something in him that that made it necessary to create these resentments and fuel to keep him going. So his inner life as a success to me is in some ways just as interesting as when he was becoming. In some ways, that's harder to do. It's easy to have those resentments, and I'm going to show you when you're in the process of showing you. But once you've shown them, once you've, once you've told the world, actually proved the world wrong, and, and everybody who cut you or looked, looked askance at you or just pissed you off, um, it's easy to glide. And he had a certain uh, trigger that, that he could pull to, to try and create those resentments, even as a success. So, so the last third of Jordan's Life, I think, is just as interesting as the first two thirds. I don't know if we'll ever get it, but I, but I'm just saying, it's a that that's an in, that's a really interesting thing. Well, it's pathological, bloodthirsty yeah. neuroses. Yeah, sure. You know, I mean, like that's it's what it's like it. a writer. Well, no, well, that's yeah. it. That yeah. that's what I'm saying is I've often thought with writers where people say, "Well, I need to not do as much writing." You don't have a choice. Yeah, they're all, they're all addicted to this kind of thing. Jordan too, and. Mm -hmm. If he gets into gambling, of course he's addicted to it. And if he's addicted to it, he's getting an emotional payoff by stakes that are going to impact his life. Otherwise, it's meaningless. Right. Right? You need to have risk. He needs to have stakes. I mean, like that article that Wray Thompson wrote about him at 50, he's still weighing himself, mm -hmm. still getting ready. If I can get to 218, I can jump in there right. and, and win a seventh title. Right. You're just like at a certain point. Jesus fucking Christ. Like, like walk off like yeah but, but 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 if if he wasn't built that way he wouldn't have it. been michael jordan i mean you can't have them both ways no you can't no you, well, you know, he's not going to become grandfather you know padding around you know no, with slippers he, you know he, and that's and we made him that way yeah we want him to be that way because we wanted him to be that way but that that, that comes with a call i mean look i did a, a massive piece on ted williams yeah when he was 78 right and ted williams was as feisty and profane and and I mean, he got up and he was in his underwear and he was swinging the bat and showing me how to properly, you know, uh, you know, swing a bat. And, and, you know, he was full of anger about other you know, things and, and hilarious to be around. But he was he was Ted Williams all the way. Right. And and that's why people are fast. We're fasc fascinated by Ted Williams all the way. Right. You know, and um, he was the best fighter pilot and he was the best yeah, fisherman and all that. Absolutely. Kind of he was always the best. But he but he, but he was that way at 78 is what right, I'm saying. Right. I mean, and and. Um, and that's why he was, he's that way at 78, and that's why he was that way at 28. Right. Jordan's this way at 57, and, and that's why he was that way at 27. Right. And, and, and that's why he's celebrated. I mean, you know, that's, that's why we care about Mike. That's why we're still talking about him. Well, it just interests me, like two movies that, that jump out at me, like the movie Heat kind of is that situation too, because the whole plot is, I mean, the title is when the heat's around the corner, drop everything. And when he gets the heat around the corner and the fire engine arrives... and We're he, talking about the De Niro picture. Yeah, 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 yeah. Michael and, Mann. Right? And De, Niro, De Niro's entire identity is, I'm this criminal who's so disciplined I can walk away. This is all I've ever been. I don't know how to do anything else. Right. And when the situation arises where you can hit pay dirt, you found a woman, you found an emotional attachment, you're going to have to be somebody new in New Zealand. You've got right. all the money in the world to do it. What does he do? Walks away from it. Because right. he has no idea who he is. Right. Whereas certain death is understood right. and anticipated, right. but a happiness with a woman right. is a terror. Yeah. 
And and I mean, I kind of reminded me of like that movie Munich that Spielberg made, also where all of these Mossad agents who are are, are getting retribution, right? Um, have these unbelievable conflicts of conscience, and the real agents wrote in places complaining, saying, uh, "You don't get where we are by being conflicted of conscience about right. executing people." Right. Sorry, but like right. we are professionals about this. None of us were really strained executing these people. Right, and the problem is, is that, is that unless the movie shows how they got that way, well, we got to have them relate relatable to right. you and me. Who are never going to be executioners. The point is, is that <laughs> right. is that there's a dishonesty because you're not showing that there are people like that, and they are necessary for that job, whether you like executions or not. Sure, you know if you're and and but the dictates of cinema or a relatable, sellable product on the screens in a mass audience is well, we've got to make him have a family and feel bad about right. killing people. Well, yeah, I mean that that's the thing. I mean they're killers, right? Right. They're, they're not like you and me. No. And, and, and it's a game yeah. for them. Yeah. You know, yeah. everything gets reduced to a game, right. you know, in order to... But also there's stuff. a sense of mission there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe, you know, which True. is, you know, <laughs> we're saving the country. I mean, they justify it in different ways, but I, I, I think they're not conflicted. Yeah. You know, in that sense, because it's justifiable in their minds because they're defending Israel, avenging the death of innocence. These are bad people who need right. to be wiped out. You know, this is the, the mindset. And so, um, no, I, 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 I agree that why, why would they, the guilt is not, they, they never, they wouldn't be in the equation that they were guilty Ever. because they can't hesitate. Right. No, they, right. Right. They're, yeah. I mean, it's like if you throw yeah. a punch at a boxer, like they know what to do. Well, look, this whole... is, you know, when recruiting, you know, for the demonization of the Japanese and the Germans, among the armed forces was very you have to dehumanize so that it makes right. it easier to kill right because if you humanize them and accept that they're not monsters but yeah. men who are sent to follow orders at, just like you were um then it's going to make a, an all-volunteer army filled with a lot of people who were conflicted and full of guilt not capable of pulling the trigger so there was a you know there's a, like a psychological sort of um process at work to dehumanize the enemy so that so that you're people don't feel guilt for killing well you remember you remember what is it called the milgram experiment that one where you zap people like is that the stanford the stanford yeah, prison thing uh not stanford i think it was at yale okay. where they first did it but like the thing is is i think it's the milgram experiment so the people come in and they're shocking people in the other room and right. all you hear is the audio of them screaming in pain and a doctor keeps upping the voltage suggested voltage right. and it's seeing how people obey orders right. in these kind of war situations yeah. but we always hear about how a, certain, a high percentage of the people will follow orders no matter what. But that was the baseline study. To really get... This was what was scary, is if you ordered people to zap, they stopped doing it. Uh -huh. They have to believe in it. Yeah. So they said that if you look at a lot of the Nazis that were in the concentration camps, right. very often there were speeches by Himmler saying, we understand this is very unpleasant. We get it. Like, right. none of you want to do this. Right. But there is a greater purpose to what we're doing that's a real service to this huge amount of people. So you have to subscribe so to more, something it's positive. it's more convincing than, than, it's a more a process of convincing subtly than 
than ordering. Well, and and yeah. and inspiring. Yeah. More than anything. Yeah. Like the like that experiment. Why they're falling through with it is the nobility of science. That right. you're sacrificing your morality for the greater good. Right. And the Nazis, it's their own right. insanity. Right. But but my point just being is that you have to really believe in something good in order to do the worst kind of evil. Yeah. As opposed to just being a. a a monotone, not a monotone, but a dial tone, simple, evil right. person. Like right. it doesn't really work that way. Um, okay, so getting to something which I ha- I don't think I've indulged in it at all yet on this podcast is I came to Scott through my favorite book on Cuba, uh, Pitching Around Fidel. I forget the subtitle at the moment. Uh, Journey into the Heart of Cuban Sports, I think. Yeah. And what I loved about this book, unlike every other book about Cuba that I read, is this guy was so conflicted about what Cuba was and about the country that he came from and the exploration kept adding complexity to both places. And I immediately wanted, well, when I first read it, I thought, well, what the hell's the point in me trying to embark on this? It's it's just exactly what I would want to do. And it, it happened 10 years ago. And then I realized that the kind of central figure in the story in a way is a guy who happened to be my boxing trainer Hector Venant who was stuck in this kind of existential crisis of he had every reason to want to leave but he couldn't leave because he had family behind and Scott tracked him down so I'd love to just we don't have enough time for my own taste but uh, how that project came to mind when Cuba was on your map and what it was like to, to land there in the early 90s? Well, I, I, my first visit there, I was writing for the Miami Herald and I went there during the Pan Am Games right? Uh, and, and 1991. And Cuba was in the midst of essentially the great, its own Great Depression. Um, it was after the cutoff of subsidies from, from the Soviet Union. And um, it was sort of... Um, Suddenly, their economy was adrift and, and plummeting. And uh, I mean, two visions stuck with me was one was I, I was at the hotel and, and, and out of uh, Teofilo came walking out of um, the hotel store, which was open only to uh, tourists and special Cubans uh, with some, some passes. And Teofilo Stevenson, the great legendary boxer who I grew up with watching on Wide World of Sports and who was sort of this foil for a geopolitical foil for Muhammad Ali and everybody dreamed of a, of a, of a match between the two of them and it never came off and he was incredibly handsome and he kind of looked like Ali and it was just bizarre, wow. the doubling. Um, and, uh, there he was coming out with two, you know, plastic bags full of goods that he could only get in the hotel. And he sort of, and, and I understood like it was because of the Pan Am games and, uh, that, 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 there was an opening where he could do that. Um, tourists were at the hotel. Maybe someone was talking to him and he got a chance to get stuff bought for him or whatever. And, you know, the, the idea of sports in that country, even though things were falling apart, athletes had, had pitched in, world-class athletes, Cuban athletes had pitched in to build the facilities to get it done in time. Um, and um, there was this, and, and, and the crowd's, Sure, clearly loved seeing now beyond any sporting situation, watching their boxers just kick hell out of the Americans, right. even if they didn't like the system. Even as they didn't like the system, there was this love for the Cuban athlete and what that meant. Um, and so I, I, I found a certain, I, f- I felt a certain nobility in the Cuban athlete struggle and and um, 
And the other, you know, and 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 the and the, essentially the I thought it was quite heroic that they were able to put those games together just on a human, on a human scale, uh, and and at a human level, just at a very basic non-political level. And then, the last day of boxing, you know, Fidel was Castro was in the stands doing the wave, um, as Felix Savone and the boxers, you know, I think I, I can't remember the exact number. I think they won seven out of eight finals against the Americans, and Teofilo just, you know, just crushed Shannon Briggs in the in the in and in, in, in the heavyweight super heavyweight division. Yeah, and Sabone did, yeah. What did I say? Sabone. You said Stevenson. No, no, Sabone. Sabone did with yeah. an incredible right hand. And 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 um and and Fidel was doing the wave. <laughs> Literally the the I would watch him like, you know, the, 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 the thing would circle the crowd the wave would circle around and I'm like, there's just no chance Fidel Castro is going to stand up and do the wave. Is sure he? he did. <laughs> and and he absolutely did. And of course, you know, I found during that time, he was visiting all the athletes all the time, and I and he had completely dressed himself up in the achievement uh, of its ath- of of Cuba's athletes. And as I found, you know, pretty quickly, like even then, was that you know this is one of the three pillars of the revolution: the, the mm. medicine, education, and 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 sports. And two of those pillars were crumbling uh, because of the depression and the cutoff of subsidies. But the sports machine was chugging on. So. I thought that was incredibly fascinating, and I ended up making seven trips down there. Um, and when I started writing the book, I was at Sports Illustrated. I did. I went down again a number of times for Sports Illustrated, and then uh, went down uh, three, four times for the book. Um, and um, Hector Venent, um, I was at the Athens game in '96, where two of his close friends and teammates. Um, defected um i think that's where he won his second gold medal yeah. and and um somebody tipped me off about venent somebody tipped me off they had been arrested or been banned and i thought when i started doing the book i said i got i got to find hector venent because the the coup for everyone at the time for journalists in miami essentially what was happening at the time was there were plenty of defections baseball baseball players especially uh, starting with renee arocha but you'd talk to Cuban athletes in Cuba and they would say, oh, no, we love the system. And the next thing you know, they're, they're in Miami and saying, oh, and denouncing Castro and socialism and communism and so on and so forth for understandable reasons. They're trying to pre- protect their families. They're not going to tell anybody, you know, what they were thinking. And but the the coup or the, the unspoken coup among journalists in Miami and American journalists was like somebody in Cuba, an athlete saying, I want to defect. Like, mm. I'm, I get me out of here. The system is crap. Really dangerous and and self-destructive. But, you know, that would have been a real story. Every, you know, everything, the stories had sort of frozen. They've been, you know, you got the same thing every time. Um, and I thought, I'm, I'm going to find Vinent. And, and really, the book was, I, uh, I really just wanted to use sports as a cheat. I wanted to show what life was like in Cuba down there through the lives of track stars, boxers, and baseball players. But it was a quest for me to find Venent because I thought for sure he's going to – I suspected that if he was banned, he might talk. Or at least I could could uh, show what his life was like as a banned athlete, which was, which was different if I could get him. So um, I um, – and, and, and in the meantime, I mean, the one thing that I, I, I wanted to show was I, I realized that I, I had first thought the book was going to be a collection of pieces about – sport like you know sporting figure like one feature after another one chapter with one guy you know 
And pretty quickly, I realized, much to my dismay to a certain event, that I had to be the American sensibility. I had to be the glue, and I had to be the stand-in for the reader and, and show you what it was like for somebody who raised with thinking of Cuba as, a, as the sort of bogeyman for the missile crisis and so on and so forth, as a place of mystique. Um, uh, what happened to that sensibility when, when, when rubbed up against what really was happening in Cuba? And, you know, I got people who wanted to defect. Vinet said, told me that he wanted to defect. But then there were also people who were very eloquent in saying why they didn't. They were like, well, the system's fucked, but, you know, I can't leave my family. You know, there, there was real heartbreak for those who stayed as well. It wasn't as black and white as people in Miami and, and in power centers in Miami and Havana would have you believe. It was very gray, which is, a, for a writer, a very enthralling place to be. And so I um, wanted to draw that, but I also wanted to show how my mind was changed because I had this romantic idea of, well, you know, this is where, this is the way sports is supposed to be. You know, um, teams don't move, you know, uh, they, they stay in the city forever. There's no free agency. If you're on a team, your, your player will stay there. Your superstar will stay there forever. And, um, and you go to the games and rich and poor sit together and there's no, um, there's no luxury boxes and, and it's 50 cents to get in. This is like, this is what, this is what every American sports fan yearns for when they talk about the Brooklyn Dodgers or, oh, sports back then. It was, and I sort of had that sensibility, even though I was realistic about life there, but I thought, well, this horrible system has created a, an American sports fan's dream of sports. This, it's happening in a dictatorship. It's, and then I, pretty quickly realized or not as over the course of writing the book that um, it is only possible in a dictatorship. Right. And, and, and actually right. the things that we'd bemoan about, or certainly at the time we're bemoaning free agency and franchise movement and high salaries and, and the divide between rich and poor, whether you like it or not, that's, that's America. Right. The, I mean, I, I, I had the freedom to, to get up and go to Sacramento and write, you know, no one told me I had a, I, you know, the newspaper in, in Milwaukee didn't draft me and say, well, you got to work here too bad. And you got to stay here for the next 40 years, much to the delight or dismay of our readers, you know, who, who want you to stay here. Instead, I got to shop my wares around and, and, you know, a lot of things I don't like about it, especially franchise movement. I mean, you know, that's, we all don't like that. It's, it's, but, but that's, capitalism that's that's who we are as a country and that's what we value and so i wanted to show that change of mind that i and it, and it was an organic thing i i it was happening to me in real time and i thought i i got to be honest about what my attitude was when i first started this project and how when it rubs up against reality it, it, it's something entirely different well and i think i think what you also got at because i arrived there literally reading your book on the plane over as a 20 year old and I remember just thinking, I mean, I had similar romanticized notions about what, what was there. I came from a family that was very, very left-leaning. Um, and I didn't, by the way. I came from one that was, my dad was a Marine and Republican. And Yeah, yeah. I mean, I came from a family that left Russia and was living in the prairies at the time that, you know, Tommy Douglas was the first to implement universal health care and... You know, Canada voted that person the number one Canadian ever. So very different place in terms of our relationship to what that represents than in the right, U.S. And Canada also had a relationship with Cuba. You could travel. Yeah. It, it wasn't fraught like the U.S.'s no. uh, relationship with Cuba. No, no, right. it wasn't. But I mean, also at the same time, I don't particularly like, I mean, the art critic Robert Hughes made made a point that 
he was looking at the last generation to ever walk into a museum where people don't say, how much is that? Where the central purpose of the art is to get more expensive on the wall as right. opposed to have any other value. Right. And in Cuba, nobody seemed to look at any of the athletes as special. They took pride in what they were right. doing, but they weren't like, that guy's better than me. No, and, 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 and that guy usually lived three doors down. That too. Right. No division. So he wasn't special. Like, you no. know, he had a wife and they had problems and you could hear it. And yeah, he was a good boxer. Right. But he was not any better than me. Although, yes, that's absolutely true. Although as a representative, when it when time came, they were very proud of their achievements. Oh, no, no, like, no I'm yeah, not saying yeah, that. I'm not yeah. saying that. No, but, but not better division, than me. Absolutely not better than me. Because it wasn't about money. It wasn't hero worship. It wasn't hero worship. Yeah, no. Absolutely. He's like, my whole family are super talented people and right. making $15 a month too. Exactly. This guy's a, an athlete who's making $15 a month. Why is that a bigger sacrifice no, than mine? No, there very much was not idolization. No. Which is completely different than this, you know, you got to be a role model. It's like, no one down Cuba is like, oh, he's a role model for me. You know? No. You know, it's like, no. you know, Barkley saying, I, you know, athletes are not role models. Well, just go to Cuba. None of them are. Well, know? no. And I, and I mean, it also made me just think, because you were kind of getting at it where it's like, I was obsessed. I was as obsessed with America as I was Cuba. And I was really looking at America as much as I was looking at Cuba me while too. I was there. Yeah, me too. Because... I was like, this is leave it to Beaver. All these conservative people who want America to go back to that, it's it's live and well in yeah, Cuba. Absolutely. Where nobody's afraid of their neighbor. Right. And women are not afraid to go out at night. Yeah. And I was like, what are these things worth? As a commodity, like, like how much do you value this? Right. Because we live in this security state here, you know, where everything is Times Square now. We're under constant surveillance. Right. Although, although the CDR, it was a very, the, the, the neighborhood watch, Oh yeah, everybody no, spy spied on each other, uh, which was which is possible only in a small country like Cuba, sure. eleven million, as opposed to China. And it was on every block, right? So, so there was a surveillance state in a different oh, no, way. I, no, I, I am not and in, in any some way ways more insidious. Yeah, no, absolutely yeah. more insidious. Yeah. But, but I want to. I just, I just was struck by. I am warned before arrival, and I think you were too, and you were processing. Be aware of how much poverty you're about to see. Be yeah. aware of how terrible this is. Right. And I did see a lot of evidence of that. But I also saw a lot of stuff that I'd never thought of as being insidious that was just the natural atmosphere of perception that I was forced to have. Mm -hmm. Be afraid of every stranger. Right. Don't go out at night. They're all coming to get you as right. a child and kidnap you and raise you, which right. I, as a child protection lawyer's kid, my dad was like, do you know how many kidnappings aren't runaways or parental abduction? Right. None. Right. <laughs> it doesn't happen. It's right. the razor blade at Halloween. Right. Why have we lost the ability to feel safe in our neighborhoods? It's yeah. not so dangerous out there. Yeah. But like, it's its own kind of abuse. And I was just struck by seeing women who didn't feel ugly because there wasn't advertising to make them feel like shit right. to buy a bunch of stuff no, or that's get surgery. Very true. There was a, a, a great pride no matter what the they look like among, or what age the, they yeah, were. Yeah. They all, I mean, they're all true. sexy. They're, they're all, all beautiful. Sexy. It's really true. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that. And it's I was very like, true. again, what is the value of yes. this? There are no magazines where, where um, a 16-year-old girl is dressed up to look like a... Thir who, who has not right. yet had a baby is dressed up to look like a 30-year-old to sell product, to make women insecure to sell product right. to them. No, because I, that's an impossible standard to ever reach. No, there were just so many things yep. that contradicted with the only kind of behavior that's accepted, like the dictatorship in democracy that yep. we lived in about social etiquette, where I just went, it says, if these people are coming up with their own stuff, I don't remember a society that wasn't market researched right. to make me buy shit. Yeah. 
and this is kind of what it looks like. And yeah, I don't like a totalitarian regime and stuff, yep. but there's something about this where to ban books suggests books have power. Right. Well, we can't even get people to read books. It's all broccoli where right. we come from. And I was like, wow, like I had never thought of, of these things that I wasn't warned against, but these are hurting. Yeah. And and yet it's exhausting to be there too. I was always glad to get back on a plane and then you feel guilty that you can leave. Right. Um, none of them... I remember just talking to people where they say, you, you'd mention raspberries or strawberries. And they what's that? And, and by the They've way... They've never been here before. And by the way, they, everybody there wanted change. Absolutely. They weren't... They weren't... Again, it was easy for us to fly there and dip in and dip out and look at it as, you know, a Petri dish to be examined and to experience. Um, and... You know, there are a lot of tourists who do that, too. You know, the, oh, sure. there's the romance of crazy Cuba. Um, uh, whereas the people who we left behind were all like, you know, this, this shit's got to change now. Oh, like, miserable. You know, we, we, this, this is, you know, and this is, this is, so even though we could find value in, in, that's in opposition to whatever we grew up with ourselves, um, they were tired. Oh, <laughs> they, yeah. They, they, didn't, they didn't care about that value. They, they wanted... They'd they'd like to have a TV and a telephone and and you no know and, and and cars that work and you know and so they all said it was a zoo. They yeah. all said we feel like we're in an open air prison. I yeah. heard that from almost everybody who wasn't eighty five years yeah. old. So no, you're right. I mean, but it, and it was and it and it was in a in its own way. It's a, a strange uh, tribute to the education system because they all everybody was incredibly articulate. Oh God, and yeah. and and grounded in real thought and and study about what was wrong with the system. I mean, there was no poverty of spirit or intellect um, in Cuba. That was the interesting thing. I mean, they were poor, but I mean, the pride there was, and, and, and the, the, the willingness to engage intellectually and, and demand you do the same right. to understand their situation was, was unparalleled. I mean, there's... And talk about false, I mean, fake news. I mean, like they'd had it for 50 years yeah. and unlike us, they could read between the lines. Yeah. They always knew like the angle of what was bullshit right. and what was true. Yeah. Whereas we're in a society where like doesn't well, alternative right. facts. Well, everybody everybody had to for survival sake or cynicism sake. Um, you, 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 there was a like sort of a, a secondary education system where you had right. to learn to parse the parse the bullshit. Right. And and they were really good at it. And and but there's, I mean, it remains for me. I mean, I you know I I've, I was photographed with our with a photographer, Victor Baldasson, who was there with me, um, interviewing um, uh, um, Hector Venant at, at Moro Castle, and, and um, uh, was told, uh, Victor went back a month later. We were, told, we, we were told that we had penetrated and, quote unquote, penetrated an impenetrable system. Which, which, you know, they took as a critique, and I'm like, yes. Yeah. Uh, but Blurb. Right, exactly. Cuban government. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. And they told us, don't, your persona non grata, don't come back. And Victor oh. went back with Walter Yost, the famous uh, uh, Sports Illustrated photographer, maybe two months later, and he was detained at the airport for 24 hours and interrogated. And when he was being interrogated, there was a folder, and it had pictures of him and me wow. at Morro Castle with Vinent. So I've never been back. Uh, and, uh, you know, but, but even so, I will tell you there's, there's, I mean, there's, there's absolutely no place like it for me. I mean, it remains this singular experience there's no, and, and a singular place. And I've traveled a lot. Yeah. You've been all over the world, right? Yeah. Well, and so I guess like one, one point that just seems like a logical intersection of, of your and I 
our, our travels there um, is is I was there for Obama's visit with everything opening up, which yeah. now is completely, you know, the door's been slammed back right. shut. But um, you played a, a rather interesting one-on-one basketball game with Obama. I did, yeah. Which I, I'd love to share that with people to hear about. Well, I, I mean, it was, uh, I, I sort of had this conceit uh, that, um, you know, you can you can tell a lot about someone by the way they play basketball. You know, yeah. it's probably like so. You, golfers would probably tell you the same thing about golf, and I think you probably most people would agree you probably can learn a lot about someone by driving with them. But I always felt like you know, if you if you play one on one, there's there's street basketball, and it's it's a very specific game you're playing a 15 or 21 and and you know make it take it or whatever and the ball is checked back and forth and anybody who's played these games understands what i'm talking about but you know how was that person is he does he call ticky tack fouls does he does he check when he's losing does he suddenly check the ball to the side to play games like what kind of person is that person um under pressure of of losing and in a one-on-one situation it's in in a sense it's basketball is boxing how do you you're probing and trying to learn something about the guy and um, uh, so I knew this was 2007, and I knew that Obama was a basketball head, which I thought was interesting. And I was writing back page columns for Sports Illustrated at the time. And I, I wrote to his, this was before he was Barack Obama. And I said, I, I would like to play one on one with him. And he only really played uh, full court, you know, five on five. He didn't play one on one very much. And. Um, but, but this was before he was Obama. He hadn't won Iowa yet. And so I, they said, okay. And I met him at a gym in Spencer, Iowa, uh, a YMCA. And, um, and, and the funny thing was, uh, was my son, I, I suddenly realized like a week before, like, oh, crap, they've all agreed. And, and, but I'm not going to be able to take notes while I play because you can't stop every you know, two seconds. Oh, then he did this and that. I need somebody to film it. So hmm. this is you know high-class high big money New York journalism, right? Uh, I, like my son was 11 and we had like a antiquated uh, camcorder in the closet that awesome. we'd use maybe twice. And I'm like, uh, you're gonna come with me and uh, you gotta learn how to use this thing. And so I put the fear of God into him. I'm like, look, okay, uh, once I, we finally figured out how to use the camcorder, which was tape, okay? And I said, um, you just gotta keep the camera on Obama the whole time. Don't, I know I'm your dad and you're tempted, like you'll be tempted to like, Flash to me. Don't care about me. Keep it on Obama the whole time. I'll be in the picture when it's necessary, but he's the, he's the story. He's the important thing. Did you think he was going to be president at that point? No. Okay. No, but I was writing. I, I thought he was going to be my column, and I needed to write yeah, about yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So I just wanted, I just No, 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 not, not yet. But I will say this. Uh, if you go back and read the column, the ending, I, I think I'm the first to predict that he's going to be president. Whoa. Because he's hit, he hits a swish, and I said no one's going to be able to stop this guy. So, hmm. so essentially... Um, what happened was my so my son had was was following. Uh, we were warming up, and, the, and Obama was going around the the perimeter of the of the court, and and he was going around, going around, going around. And then all of a sudden, he's coming closer to my son. He's coming around the court to talk to my son, and my son's got the camera on him. And suddenly, Obama's right next to him. And I would have put the camera at that point, looked up to him, and talked to him, and started filming my foot. But my son, I had so drilled into him, keep the camera on Obama, that he flipped the camera. And, he, and and so the camera was like this. And so you have a child's eye view of Obama looking down. And going, no. And, and it was the most revealing part of the entire day. Because he was like, because I was warming up out there. And, he, and I was like, he's like, so uh, what's your dad got? What kind of games he got? 
And, and he was serious. And, he's like, and so he's pumping my son. He's like, oh, okay. And my son, you know, immediately, like, just gives me up. He's like, oh, well, he, he, uh, he doesn't, uh, you know, he, he, hasn't, he hasn't played in, like, three years. He says he's not in basketball shape, you know, all that, you know, and his shot's a little bit off. And Obama's like, yeah, I could see all that. All right. Yeah, all right. Well, he looks like he's, you know, he could get inside. But, well, and, and, but you can, but the great thing about it was, first of all, his face was hard-eyed competitor. It was not. You still have this footage? Yeah, it wasn't fun Obama. It wasn't comic Obama. It wasn't eloquent Obama. It was, I'm going to kick your ass Obama. Huh. And the second thing was, is that, um, and then he goes, okay, I got, I got it. I got it. I got them all sussed out. And so, and then we went off and played. What was the score? I don't remember. The first, the first game, my shot was off and, and he, he has no left. And, and, <laughs> and, but, but I was shooting completely from the outside and my shot was off and I lost, uh, he's quicker than I am. So, so you're about the same age though, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're yeah. the same age, but I hadn't played while he's been playing. Yeah. And I'm not saying, I'm, I'm saying, uh, if we played yeah, all the athletic. time, I would have won two out of five games when we played, like it would have okay. been e more even, but my shot was off. He, he won the first one pretty easily. And the second one that in between games, he's like, yeah, well, first of all, I, I clubbed him at one point. He, I, he, he, the ball went skittering off and then he grabbed it and I kept going off the court, you know, to the right. And he went to score and I did what everybody uh, you know, what you do in that situation was I ran back in and just clubbed him so that he couldn't get the ball out, you know, and he's Whoa. like, you know, you, you can get killed for doing that, you know, because the Secret Service was around. Were they? Were they? Oh, yeah, yeah. They were they're already been assigned to him because it was early, but he was a black candidate. There was a lot of feeling about. Oh, so my, he was, my he father was, and I thought he was going to get assassinated. Yeah, he was sure. he was oh. assigned Secret Service protection earlier than, than usual. Huh. Because then he won in Iowa, and that's when they would have kicked that's in, but they had already done it at that point. And, and I had spoken to Michelle prior to this, and she had said, you know, if you're if, if he comes back with a broken nose, I'm coming after you. I mean, she was like, you know, oh and she, warning me. It was a very fun conversation. But she talked about how basketball was used as a vetting process when she started dating him. His, her brother, Craig Robinson, who ended up being a coach at Oregon State, uh, her father said, take him, take this guy out and play with him, see what kind of guy he is. So it was dovetailed with my thought Amazing. about basketball. And Obama and I sat in between. We played two games, played the first game, sat down for about... 30 minutes talked about i mean he had a dr j poster over his bed like i did growing up and mm. we, i brought a red white and blue aba ball to play and he talked about how his his coach called him the n-word in high school and how wow. the one gift that his dad ever gave him was a basketball so it was really important to him and central to him so it was very wow. a great conversation and a great window basketballs as a way into who he was so it was a really valuable thing and then he won iowa and that was the end of that I mean, that, and what I mean is, is that he, he yeah, then yeah. became Obama. I never would have gotten that story if if I'd tried it after Iowa. I'm sure of it. I love how you find these things because they're so unusual. I like on the surface, I'm like, okay, playing one on one with Obama with this candidate, this up and coming candidate who has a good shot at being president, that's great. But I would ne it would never occur to me to connect it to his dad and and the dating with Michelle. That's yeah. just wonderful. And the other thing, that, the other thing, I will say this: the one thing that I came, uh, he he reminded, and I said this at the time, he reminded me of Kennedy, like when he was running. Mm. He didn't need us, like with with Clinton and Bush, who I'd met. There was a certain they they wanted you to like him. Yeah. They, 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 there was a politician trying to win you over. Obama did not need you or me. Um, and that's part of why I think he drove a lot of people crazy who didn't like him. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you, I think if you remember, he, he, uh, Michelle said, if it doesn't work here, we're done. You know, we're, we're not going to be around. We're not running for president again. Like this is, this was our, this is our shot. And that he, I don't think he needed to be president. Yeah. Like Bill Clinton needed to be president. 
like even George Bush in one way or another needed to be president. Um, Obama didn't need it. So there was this remove, this, this cool remove that I think Kennedy had as well, um, where, you know, he was raised to be president, but I'm not sure, you know, he could have been happy, you know, gallivanting all over Hollywood, I think, and would have been fine, Jack Kennedy. Um, but, um, but Obama, that, that was the instant, there, there was a, a coolness to him that was remarkable and, and a confidence. And like I said, he, you know, I, I, at the end of the second game, I think he beat me like nine, seven because, because in between games, he said, you know, you, you outweigh me by like 20 pounds. I figured you'd back me in. I'm like, Oh yeah. So, you know, so then I started backing him down and, and, and putting up some, you know, stuff. And, uh, and, and, uh, then at the, at the end of the game, uh, the second game, I said, okay, he was at the top of the key. And I said, this is for the presidency. Wow. And I checked him the ball. I didn't think about it. It wasn't, it was not something I'd scripted. And he drilled the, uh, uh, you know, top of the key jumper. And I said, um, did you hear what I said? And he goes, why do you think I hit it? Wow. So, uh, man, I, and I wrote about that moment. And, you Whoa. know, it's like the, that, this, that, it, that the shot was unstoppable, just like he is. And, and so I, I, I do, I, I saw something. I wrote it at the time that, look out for this guy. That's he, so, wow. Yeah. That's such a fun one for no, me. No, it, it was great. And, and, you know, it was an incredible trip with me and my son. Um, you know, Obama became him, his guy, you know, just because he was, sure. he met him, you know, he's like, you know, and, and Obama was nice to him and, and took pictures and all that stuff. And, and, you know, so when Obama won, it was a, it was a big deal for my son in, in our household. That's amazing. Yeah. I, the only thing I have close to it, which is nothing close to it, but I remember Reagan Dow, like watching him at 30 years old, two-time Olympic champion right. and, and just being like you're maybe the most skilled fighter who's ever lived and for people who care about this to watch you train is just such a privilege and then he kind of walked off and he was doing his thing and I walked over to his manager and I was like I just would like one round just to just to spar with him mm -hmm. I, I'm not trying to prove anything right, right, but right. I just like to you want to feel what it's like and I was speaking in English and Rigandau from the ring looked over and he just went then get the fuck in here, mm -hmm. basically. He didn't yeah. say it in English, but he's just like, then right. get the fuck yeah. in here. And I looked at the look in his face, and he was not in a particularly good mood that day. <laughs> and I thought, if I had a mouth guard, I'm willing to get knocked out. But I'm not willing to lose teeth and go right. to the dentist for this. So right. I was just like, no, thank you. Yeah. I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> I was not trying to talk shit. But I've always regretted just not having just a few seconds of him kind of at his peak, just to, just to feel that opposite me. You know, it's, it's, he's had a heartbreaking, I, I feel uh, he and the Cuban fighters like him have, have had such a heartbreaking walk in, in America. It's been miserable. But I'm, but I'm talking just from a technical level. I mean, I understand everything else. Yeah. But the idea, because they are artists, defensive artists, you know, and, and, and it's so unvalued uh, in a boxer in America. Um, it's just not pretty for the American fan. There's no knockout. There's, you know, it's, it's all points and tactics. But but it is the heart of what we call the sweet science. That phrase is there because of, Hit. I mean, the, that kind of of understanding of of physical dynamics and and tension, and uh, you know, I, I Ariel Hernandez was was in, you know not not quite the defensive wizard, but but in the same way, like you know, he he would have been a disaster, you know, an unappreciated fighter, and, and yeah. so that Cuban boxing aesthetic. Um, I, you know, I, it, it's, it's, um, 
it's like watching it's like watching uh, an art form go out of style you know yeah you know it's a good way woodworking it. or something like will it how long will it last before it just disappears because it's just not valued in the money in the world of of money and and kinetic explosions you know i mean well there was a kid recently who came over just like vinette just mm. like just like guillermo Rigindiao, who uh rubisi ramirez two-time olympic champion greg bishop at sports illustrate right. profiled him a bunch of other places did too tv right. spot everything is there to launch this again lower weight guy who's hyper skilled right uh great defection story went to mexico right. cartel is chasing him and he gets gets to the U.S. gets a TV fight for for his first fight, big contract kind of on the line, and he puts so little effort in that you think Jesus Christ, that you've gone through all of this to put forward an effort that is so nonplussed. Did he lose the fight? Uh, yeah, and and he just lost it strictly on the fact that he just didn't seem to give a shit, wow. just just didn't care, didn't did do he, anything. It's funny. He, did he cop to it or? Did, did anyone no. explain it, or he just he just it's a just, lackluster? Just nothing there. Just just sort of arrogant, entitled. Hmm. Like why bother? So what is what's? Give me an update on your man, Rigondo. Well, he just won another title at thirty nine years old. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, he's old. Still, nobody really wants to fight him. Do you have any contact with him? Uh, no. I mean, he. I don't. I don't know that he particularly appreciated, like I, I, I designated him the saddest face that I ever saw in Cuba and yeah. I said it looked worse when he got to the U.S. Right. Uh, he's got a new life now. He's got a new wife. He's yeah. got a new child. I don't know what the situation is back home. I don't, I'm not aware of him ever going back to Cuba. Right. Um, it was nine years ago that I interviewed the wife and kids and the last things they were saying to me was is he would never abandon us. Mm -hmm. Our husband is going to bring us over. Well, that, that did not happen. Yeah. And you've covered a lot of people yeah. that similar. I, and again, I don't know the specifics. Right. I'm not saying, I don't know what he's right. sending back or anything right. like that. But uh, it's certainly what they firmly believed was going to happen did not happen. Do, do you think, uh, how, how do you think he's regarded in, uh, at this moment, pound for pound, best boxer alive? Who is it and where does he rank? Well, I think at his at his best achievement was at Radio City Music Hall. He fought the ESPN Fighter of the Year, Nonito Donaire, and right. he was a three to one underdog, and he just completely outclassed him. And even after the first round, Donaire was just aware: if I make one mistake, I'm going to get knocked out. So I'm going to take no chances. I'm happy to lose right. a heavy decision. And I think if Floyd Mayweather had done the same thing right. against Pacquiao, and at the time that Rigo did it against Donaire, it was a bigger achievement. He was a three-to-one underdog. It wasn't like the Pacquiao right. odds against Mayweather right. when that happened. Um, but because it was a Cuban with no fan base in New York City, um, it just destroyed his career. It was just a meltdown of all these executives saying, how do you profit off of this? So, so do you think in any way he regrets coming? The only thing he ever talked about coming once he was in the U.S. was always just money. Yeah, that's yeah. all he ever had to talk about is why should I talk to you unless you're not paying me? Right. Um, everybody's trying to rip me off. Yeah. Everybody's deceitful. And meanwhile, you know, he was pretty unethical, trying to snag money wherever he could as well. Yeah, although I will say, uh, you know, I covered a lot of Eastern European athletes after the fall, uh, obviously in '89 and the fall of the Soviet Union. 
And, you know, it's a luxury of our society that, oh, you know, I want to be an all-time great. Yeah. I want to be, you know, that's the, you know, I want to, uh, I want to win, I want to win the Grand Slam record and everything else. But for the Eastern Europeans and the Russians who were coming over in the, after the fall, making money was the win. Oh, yeah. And, and for good reason. I sure. mean, they were coming from a different value structure where they needed to take care of their families. Like, like. Uh, they're not thinking about chasing Margaret Court or Pete Sampras, you know, or Roger Federer for this all time, you know, I want to be the greatest of all time. It's like, I, I, I need to make money for my family. That's the win. So I, I, I always grade on a scale in that regard. I'm not saying you're wrong about Rigondo, no, no. but I just think, you know, he that, wanted that, a Bentley. Like that was his yeah, thing. Is like, it, I want to lose a Bentley. You know, Michael Jordan wants to be the greatest of all time. Yeah, LeBron yeah. James, you know, they're all, but, and again, they, LeBron, especially not Michael, but LeBron came from really hard, hard, sure, scrabble, uh, you know, background, of course. But he is in a society that once you reach a certain, you know, you're you're you have the luxury of like I want all time greatness, or I, I I I owe this to my fans, you know, to to strive to be the greatest of my era, or pound for pound. But I I've found over and over that you know, like Marat Safin was a great tennis player, credible package. Uh, handsome guy credible backhand tall spoke three languages spanish russian english hilarious mm. and he was as quote-unquote talented as roger federer at least at the time and there, there was always this like oh why you know why doesn't he care more why doesn't he win and he, he ended up winning two two grand slams uh u.s open and an australian and and uh I'm trying to think if he won a third i can't remember but but still not as many as we sort of projected for him but I don't think he was unhappy. He 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 made his millions and he and he won a Grand Slam and he did what he's you know and and it just was a it's just a different value system that the American athlete has the luxury of having, uh, or even the the well heeled European athlete that oh, yeah. that people coming from that element of privation, you know, they're not they're not doing it for the beauty of sport. They're doing it because oh, no. they need to eat and they oh, need, no. and they've got a network of families that. A family that that needs to eat and get out. So, so I just I'm not saying he's right or, or you're wrong no, or no, anything no. like that. I'm just saying that the the value system is different and, and completely understandable to me on one level. Well, and I think the stakes with him. I mean, him him attempting to leave the first time. I mean, his mother fully supported it. His dad disowned him right. and said, you know, look what Fidel has done for our family in the middle of buttfuck nowhere, right, in, on the eastern side of the island. Like we're coffee farmers, and. You had right. all these opportunities yep. because of this this guy and this revolution. And then the one thing he wouldn't talk about was the actual escape in a smuggler's boat. And f from what his like, wife told me and, and some other people, it was like it was by far the most traumatic experience of his life. Right. You know, and just terror of dying or ending up in Mexico or never seeing his family right. again. Um, after he left, his mother died right away, couldn't go to her funeral and... I just kept coming back up against what are these things worth? Yeah. No matter how much money you're earning, right. how do you put a price tag on these kind of things? And how right. is he? And to me, it just explained the face being so sad, mournful, yeah. shameful. Yeah. And I'm not saying you should feel shame. Right. And I'm not saying I would do the same things that he right. was doing if I was a uncashed lottery ticket right. if I left. But I want to just, just touch on one last thing because um, we talked about it a little bit. Um, it's in the news about all these changes with ESPN Magazine collapsing, Sports Illustrated is changing. And, yep. and I remember one of my favorite pieces that you wrote was about Richard Ben Kramer trying to write a book about Alex Rodriguez. Yeah. 
and that guy like i was just rereading uh, what it takes oh incredible book fuck that guy is yeah. just a monster and you you were referencing earlier um teddy williams and i mean his piece yeah. a lot of people think it's one of the best profiles ever. if not the best yeah. if not the i mean yeah. i don't know i've read better yeah. than that but I mean, this industry and and seeing you show up on Twitter at some point and me just going, yeah, how how on earth did they? They must have had his family at gunpoint. Well, they did say you have to be on Twitter or Facebook. <laughs> I mean, that was that was that was no. marching order. That was that was marching orders. And you know, I thought, uh, you know, all right, you know, I mean, it's not. Uh, and 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 the weird thing is, I, I will say this, and I have no use really for Twitter. I, I use it mostly to. Um, retweet out things i like yeah you know i, I i'm I, I i don't really want to talk about myself and i don't you know and, and, and i think nobody cares i mean as the, I, I, frankly I, I don't care what i think but I you're mean, a journalist I, well not only that but 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 <laughs> i i mean i'm a journalist because i i'm bored with myself like I, I i live inside my head all the time i go out and talk to other people because i find them more interesting yeah. so so for me to you know i i and again i've i've done I'm sure I've sent out stupid tweets. You know, I'm not. I'm not saying I'm better than anybody in that regard. But my, I, I, I don't. I don't really use it to rip people. I don't. You know, I just. I just do it to. You know, when I see something I like, because if anybody's going to quote unquote follow me, which I kind of hate that term, also followers. I mean, give me a break. But you know, I'm a writer. Maybe they know me because I'm a writer, and I'm like, well, here's here's some interesting writing. You know, here's an interesting thing. So I. I that's. But but what about but, but, and, and the thing is, yeah. Sports Illustrated never gave me marching orders like, "Hey, you got to tweet. Don't tweet about politics. Do do this. This is why you should be on Twitter." Like there was never any marching orders or standards in terms of just what you should or shouldn't do. And so I just made it up. And I, I don't know if I'm doing it well or not. And and you know, I, I, you know, I certainly don't recommend anybody follow me. You know, so. Well, I just bring it up because I mean, it seems like I mean the the cliche, and I don't. Yeah. I think it's pretty accurate. Is that like journalists just live on Twitter? Yeah. Endlessly, like endlessly, everybody needs to be listening to what they're saying. And well, yeah, and, and it's a very much an echo chamber of journalists. Yeah. More than more than frankly more than anybody else. Right. You know, and and. And, you know, I, I think it's a, I mean, there's, there's a whole mystique. I mean, look, I grew up with the mystique of the writer and the creator, right. you know, I don't, I want I don't want to really know what, I mean, I guess I'll, I'll read a biography. I mean, like I said, Hemingway, like you, you read about sure. him, you're like, oh, what a loathsome man. Right. Awesome. Overall, you know, and, 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 but you read the prose and you're like, well, and, and it's sort of whoever they are, it's the best of them distilled into, into art, you know? And, um, you know, writers are, are not a, we're not a, we're not a, a an attractive breed, you know. We're neurotic and competitive and petty, and 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 we're, we we. It's hard for us to just live without thinking twice about everything, you know. It's a, we're, yeah. we're self conscious, and um, I think it really comes out on on Twitter. I think I think I think the, the people can I, see the, how awful. Oh yeah, are. yeah. You just you're really you know the the, the writer Twitter does writers no favors. <laughs> you become less you know less and less interesting, and and I think it really affects. You know, I, I, it's not an attractive breed. There are other people who might be attractive, but you're not as funny as you think you are. You're not as smart as you think you are. Uh, you're not as good as you think you are right. on, on Twitter. And and frankly, there are plenty of people, including myself, who adopted, I'm sure, I, I'm sure I'm included in this, who, who, who adopt a certain persona who like, I know people who I really like in person who uh, I, 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 I hate hearing on Twitter. Like I hate their tone and, their, and their, their um, style on Twitter. And I really love them. Yeah. You know, but I can't, but it's just whatever persona is adopted or whatever is just not for me. And so I, I think it's a, 
and 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 frankly, it's 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 a waste of time. I mean, writers, you know, yeah. what you're going to spend your life 140 bytes doing this? Like, shouldn't you be writing 140 characters of good work? And I get it. Like, here's the thing: this is a desperate time in the industry. Like, I'm not. Uh, these are my thoughts about it. But everybody's desperate to create a brand, brand, or 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 to get a job or whatever. The 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 industry has cratered in terms of pay scale. Um, I think you know the latest. I mean, I worked for McClatchy. McClatchy, you know, I worked, my first job was the Sacramento Bee, and then McClatchy later on bought the Miami Herald, which I also worked for. So, I've, you know, I've got two, two papers that are, you know, filled with people in pain right now who are, who are trying to figure out what next. And, you know, so, I, I, I mean, I, I can exaggerate this. You know I, don't know, I don't know how many, I think it's 48% of the, the industry have lost jobs. You know, the, is, is small, it's that much smaller than it was 20 years ago. You know, we all we all know the figures. It's it's and it's unstoppable. So I do understand the imperative. Like I, there are writers on TV, and I'm like, well, do I want to see writers? But I certainly understand why why writers are on TV because that's where the money is. They're Willie Sutton. They, you know, sure. they, they got to feed their family. I, and and so I I have no um no problem with anybody doing any of this because they're trying to survive because it's, it's a it's a it's a killer industry right now and it's really tough and. And nobody really knows what works. Nobody knows what what's gonna allow us to survive as 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 writers uh, to to feed our families and and keep doing the work. So it's it's a really tough time, and and um, so people think they have to be on Twitter because they have you know it's an economic imperative, you know. And and you know I I understand that. But but also I mean I understand that I understand that necessity of Twitter. Like right. no, no question. Yeah. Of course, trying to put stuff out. But what I found the most intriguing is like I, I read an interview with Matthew Salinger, who mm-hmm. finally talked about his dad. Yeah. Never did. Yeah. And he said it was always interesting for us to track the way my dad was portrayed right. in the media. That just by saying I want privacy to focus on my work. Right. One book was enough. I don't want to be pu- publishing. Well, I always anymore. found it funny that he wasn't really a recluse. He at just all. didn't do interviews. He was he was up in Vermont walking around. All People time. knew him. You know, it wasn't like he was like in a basement scratching himself no. like Howard he Hughes, c- but it was sort of like he was the Howard Hughes of literature. Right. He had long fingernails and he was collecting his urine in bottles. Right. And never speaking to a human being. No, he just didn't do interviews. That's not a recluse. Or publish. Right. But but fine. But that's yeah. not a recluse. It's no, not not at all. He's talking to human beings. It's just that he's not doing what you want. Right. That's well, and see that that's the thing is he, he's not talking to the media. Right. What, a, what a lunatic. He d- yeah. He doesn't want to go on Oprah. Right. He doesn't want to have a million followers. He yeah. doesn't want all these things that we're supposed to want. Right. And so we stigmatize him as being deranged. Right. As opposed to us. us. Yeah. And, and what we're doing. Well, he's not giving us what we need. Yeah. Making us feel better. Supposedly. Right. I mean, you know. And so, you know, yeah. And he's not wanting what we want. Right. Why don't you want to be published? Why don't you want fame? Well, I, I write for me. Yeah you must be insane because I want to be published and I want to be famous. You know I mean? That's, that's right. the attitude. Right. So why would, why don't you, it must be something wrong with you, but it's, 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 um, and it must be a bigger strategy to become even more famous. Right. Like is, is the, it's like, it's so interesting how we, that's what the sunset is. You look at my dad and it's, he's private. He's notorious. He's reclusive. He's notoriously reclusive. Right. The escalation, which he says you can just track society where society is getting more, living an endlessly right. public life, looking at anybody who desires privacy must be sick. But here's the dirty secret. Yeah. Writers are not that interesting. <laughs> That's why they create, if they're doing fiction, or, or, and, and they create interesting lives right. on paper. Or like journalists, they go out and talk to other people. We ourselves are not that interesting. Guess what? That's, that's the dirty secret. 
we, we shouldn't be public because we're not that interesting. That's right. why we go talk to other people. The fact is, is that I go and talk to other people because I find them more interesting than me. Right. Uh, their lives uh, and their dynamics and their troubles and their, their triumphs are more interesting than mine. And I certainly agree with that. So like the best thing I can do, my talent is not talking about myself. I mean, this two hours is going to be going to drive, you know, people are going to want to put drive nails through their foreheads, you know, I mean, but but what I'm saying is, is that is that my value is that I, I've been able to get people to talk to me and to tell me their stories and, and 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 at my best and there's plenty of worst there, but at my best, I've been able to, you know, put it into together into a package where it's where it's readable and and that's but it's not talking about me. It's talking about that. And, and again, the animating principle for me, whenever using the first person, because for me, the first person, the I, is like an exclamation point. Hmm. There's a reason they look so much alike. You use them, <laughs> use them sparingly because they're so powerful. So they better be, they, you better use them sparingly for me. And so, you know, I just, I just think that the animating principle when I went to Cuba was I'm not going to put anything in this book. Like I'm not going to say, oh, I woke up and I scratched my ear. Like I'm going to put myself in it if there's anything I did that illuminates what, what Cuba is like. Like if, if one of my experiences somehow shows what it's like to be in Cuba, then, I'll, then that's in. Um, I mean, I got horrifically sick one day just uh, when I went to see uh, a fight uh, with Ariel Hernandez and, and was taken in by this fantastic family who were incredibly compassionate. I mean, this was, you know, Teresa to the worst degree, horrible scene. You know, the toilet didn't flush. It was it was a terrible thing. And I had that in the book and I cut it out because it really didn't do anything but talk about me and my hmm. sort of pain. And 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 who cares? Like, like, you know, it's like so you have to be merciless in my mind that that and, and that's how I feel about um, the, the I mean, whenever I use first person, I do it sparingly because of that, because I just think I as a subject i'm not as interesting as the the the, the place i'm at and and it's and and that's the or the people i'm talking to and and i think it's dangerous for i mean i know that we all are supposed to be a brand but but i hate to tell you aside from maybe norman mailer and frankly he wasn't nearly as interesting as he thought he was in fact he was a crashing bore half the time um or three quarters of the time but most writers are just not that interesting to 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 be around and 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 their thoughts are not that original and you know they're 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 good as instruments to transmit something, but this this push to be a thing is is uh, it, it it damages the work too. It's, it takes you away from what you're good at. Well, and I, I mean, as this industry seems to be an implosion, nobody wants to pay for anything right. anymore. Yeah, I mean, well, that's another thing because I think that's the rise of the first person also is because basically. Um, access is much more limited than it used to be and as a result people are like well we're assigning you this story you got to make it different you got to make it new somehow and so people are like well i'm not getting derek jeter so i'll talk about my fandom for derek jeter and right. maybe put that in the context and then see him at a press conference and you know weave it together and i get it like you know it's like they're trying to get work you know it's, it's but i think that there's a, a a feeling of um i i think the work suffers when there's this sort of feeling that you do and i understand it it's because of economics but but it's 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 hurting it's hurting the craft. It's just it's just shocking to me. Thomas Hauser told me, I think in the mid '80s that he could do a Q and A for Penthouse and make ten grand or something for like a night's work. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow! Like I got something in with the chess book in Playboy 
like a, a little excerpt of a couple of pages and it was a thousand bucks. Right. And it took a while to get that thing in there and edit it and everything. And I just thought, boy, like how the fuck do you live in Manhattan on this kind of salary when like Playboy, which used to be the highest paying magazine in the world. Right. Now. Right. Doesn't really make much. No, of I know. It, and, and nobody, I mean, the Washington Post is doing a great job, but, but they got, they got a, Bezos. a billionaire to come in and, and, he gave them runway. That's what he said. He, I can't, but I think he's now in it for the long haul because he thinks he's saving democracy and defending us against Trump and it makes him look good while he's ravaging American retail. It's a nice, he's right. got a community image of someone who's like, you know, running this newspaper and it doesn't cost him anything really, he, it, it, any losses he suffers, but it's not gonna hurt his wallet in any way. But, <laughs> yeah, you know, that, that's, that's, everybody wants a Bezos, but nobody knows really what next and it, it's a really terrifying time for the industry but frankly you know we're at a, I, I think we're at a we're at the end of the gutenberg era i think people want to see video i think the masses there will always be readers there will always be novels there will always be writing but but there's a reason that you know if there was a, a if time magazine was at the central the central cultural institution it once was which had novelists on the cover there's a reason we don't have it's showrunners that are now central sure. to the color you know culture they, and and they're doing great things and it but it's visual because i think most people not people like me but uh you know uh want their information delivered uh visually and are going to want that more and more and whether it's stories or narratives there's always going to everybody always says well there's always going to be a, a a demand for stories absolutely but how those stories are going to be delivered is changing and print is slowly but surely becoming more and more niche certainly print and even words digitally or people want video people want you know tell me give me a documentary give me a podcast you know i want to i want to while i'm commuting you know i mean so so it's we're really seeing a true transformation and 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 you know it's 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 only going to get worse i think for people who are dedicated to words and words only Thank you so much for this. This was, sure. this was fun. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcon Swaby, Dolgan Media, myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and our audio editor is Anda Salaji. Thanks for listening.